0: You are listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will be discussing Cold November Murder, the puzzling case of Rudy Allen Rothberg. I'm Peyton Moreland. And I'm Garrett Moreland. And this is Murder With My Husband, a true crime podcast. We bring you a unique perspective on true crime podcasting because I absolutely love it and I hate it. I cannot comprehend the fascination with true crime. Listen as I venture into the darkest crimes by telling Garrett a different true crime story each week to get his reaction and discuss how we see each of the morbid details differently. Two point of views, one true crime podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. I love it. And I hate it. Goodbye. Hello, hello. Did you hear that? That was our first ever cross promotion and I could not be more excited. Big things are happening around here. I love, 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 love listening to murder with my husband. I seriously listen to it every Sunday night because honestly, is there any better way to start the week? I think not. I love the dynamic between Peyton and Garrett. It reminds me so much of me and my husband, and maybe you can relate to it as well within your own relationship or someone in your family. Um, in my case my mom is always calling me and asking me, "Shelly, when is another when are you going to be releasing another one of your episodes?" And every week I tell her, "Mom, I release on Tuesday." but she calls me the following week to ask me the same question. Seriously, love you, mom. But on the other hand, my dad has only listened to like one episode and it was the one about aliens and even that one made him feel uneasy. So I think every family has that person who loves it and every family has that person who hates it. So I love how relatable Murder With My Husband is. So go check him out. You won't be disappointed that you did. Honestly, if anything, you're going to be deprived if you don't. So go check him out. Okay, so here we are on episode seven of the podcast. I feel as though I'm going a bit rogue with the Netflix series of Unsolved Mysteries at a pause for just a while. So I decided to go back to my roots where my interest in true crime began, a mid-sized city in upstate New York, the place I refer to as home, Syracuse. It was in a little red and white house where I first watched an episode of Unsolved Mysteries at age nine with my mom, and I seriously had heart palpitations, but in a good way, you know? Also, if you're just joining us and you are not already following us on our Instagram at unsolved, please do. It feels so good to talk to you guys after each episode and hear your thoughts and ideas Also, if you're like me and you don't have a lot of people to talk true crime with, I promise it feels like coming home. We won't judge you for being interested and intrigued by the morbid and morose. We promise to welcome you with open arms. So seriously, what are you waiting for? Come home! The case we are going to discuss today is almost half a century old and has zero leads. And it's not like there were leads, but those didn't like pan out. This case has always had zero leads, which makes it equal parts baffling and devastating. The sources that I used to create this episode are from bigfrog104.com, SyracusePostStandard.com, thejobnetwork.com, syracuse.com, cbsnews.com, and atlantic.com. Like I said earlier, this is the case of Rudy Allen Rothberg. And while I grew up in Syracuse essentially my whole life, and while this case happened very near to my home, I had actually never heard of it before deciding to research it for you all today. This case happened in the early 1970s, so well before I was even a thought. I mean, my mom was born in 1970, this case happened in 1972, so by the time I came along into the world, this Cold case was already almost 20 years old. However, this case has quickly become one that is near and dear to my heart, not only because of its location, but also because of the lack of information about the victim and the crime itself. It breaks my heart that this case is going to be 48 years old this November and it is nowhere near being solved. But Rudy's story deserves to be told. Rudy doesn't deserve to be forgotten. And so, If I can just give him a small platform today to see if there's anyone out there listening that has information regarding his death, I am obviously more than happy to do that. Early in the morning of November 8th, 1972, a 52-year-old man named Rudy Allen Rothberg was on his way home from a long three-day work trip. You see, Rudy was a professional truck driver working for Whitaker Trucking Company. He was headed northbound on Interstate 81, just south of Syracuse, New York. Mr. Rothberg had driven for Whitaker for about six years. Before that, he had driven for Homeland Dairies in Messina, New York. His coworkers described him as hardworking, respectful, professional, and prompt. My dad has been in the trucking industry for quite some time, and he can attest that while those are all qualities that someone working in any profession would be happy to have working for them, it's especially valuable within the trucking industry. Promptness and a good work ethic are so vital in the trucking industry. Because you're trying to deliver products to as many places as you can and as quickly as you can. Because as we know, time is money. I don't know if people realize how valuable the trucking industry is within our country. It truly is the backbone of America. Oftentimes we forget about them or fail to acknowledge the hard work that they do for us behind the scenes. They truly are essential workers. But because if the trucking industry ever decided to like go on strike... It would be absolutely devastating to our economy and our ability to fill up our stores with the products that we have come to rely on. And super quickly too, I mean, I don't want to speak for my dad, but I'm almost positive that he has said that without the trucking industry working at its best, our grocery stores would deplete within a matter of days. I also think that people who have chosen truck driving as a profession oftentimes Get a bad rap from the public. I think that there are people out there who often associate truck drivers with being gruff or harsh. There are those who think that they're uneducated or possibly even dirty or lazy. And while I'm sure that could be true in some cases, I think that there are lazy people in all professions. I think for the most part, truck drivers are just very kind and they're working very hard. And Sure, some of them have a gruff exterior, but that's most likely a trait that they've developed in the field as a coping mechanism. I mean, have you traveled around the U.S. lately? I mean, probably not lately, lately because of the coronavirus, but you must go back into your memory. You must remember how absolutely psychotic and annoying some people can be out there on the road. It's okay. You can admit that sometimes you don't like people very much. This is a safe space. Also, most entry-level positions in the trucking industry are paid $40,000, and after they have some experience under their belt, their belt they can be making upwards of eighty dollars to $100,000 per year. Plus, they are getting paid to drive around and see some of the most beautiful places in the country. They literally can drive and listen to music and true crime podcasts all day long and get paid for it, and I don't know about you, but that seems pretty smart to me. At about 1:45 on November 8th, 1972, Rudy pulled his tractor trailer into a rest area for some much-needed rest in a spot near U.S. 20, just south of Lafayette. I mean, sure, Rudy lived in Evans Mills, New York, which is only about a, an hour and a half drive from where he stopped, and while he could have made it we don't really know why he chose to stop, but I'm assuming it's because he was very tired and maybe he didn't feel safe. Like he could drive home safely that hour and a half, but it makes me so sad because we are going to learn what happens to him. And I just am like, if you would have only just driven like 10 miles up and chosen a different rest area, maybe this would not have happened to you. But Shortly after 3 a.m., another truck driver working for Whitaker Trucking Company similarly decided to stop at the exact rest stop. It's unsure why he stopped. I don't know if he had to go to the bathroom. I don't know if he needed a rest. I don't know if he just stopped because he saw another Whitaker truck and wanted to see if that employee needed any help. Whatever the reason, the witness came across Rudy's body, and in an attempt to save his life, he immediately called the police. Now, at first, I was freaking out when I read this because I was so confused why it would take two hours to make this discovery. I mean, I know that it was in the middle of the night, but I thought rest areas were pretty well populated but this was actually pretty quick considering I later found out that there is a big difference between a rest area and a truck stop. If you're like me and you aren't incredibly familiar with these trucking terms, I got your back. A rest area is just a strip of road alongside of a major highway. You've probably seen them um, while out on a road trip. Oftentimes there is just a little bathroom or sometimes even just an outhouse depending on how remote the area is and it is generally considered a safe place for a truck driver or even like a common person like you and me to pull over if you're feeling too sleepy to drive or you're worried that it might even be dangerous to continue driving due to being tired or if there's like bad weather or maybe you're having some like vehicle trouble. Um, You can rest up or wait it out and continue on your merry way. Rest areas are usually Remote and they are not for long term use. They're often a bit desolate and away from heavily populated areas. Its basic design is literally to be a safe haven for drivers when there's not a town nearby, but a truck stop. Now, truck stop is more formal and organized. Truck stops are usually better lit and more heavily populated. Um, a truck stop is sort of like an RV park in a sense. It's not exactly the same, but in a sense, it's like that because you have to check in with a truck stop and you have to purchase a spot and that will give you access to their various amenities. A truck stop often has showers to use, places to eat, restrooms massage chairs perhaps even a little market it is a great central location for a truck driver who is working on the road to get a decent night's sleep or even just like a couple hours of sleep clean up without having to pay the costly price of a hotel more likely than not and my dad can attest to this a professional truck driver has their favorite truck stops these are the truck stops that they try to hit every time that they're passing through um, they do this because oftentimes they develop friendships with workers at the truck stop and they have other truck drivers who have similar work schedules that they want to meet up with. Sometimes these drivers are on the road during Christmas and Thanksgiving. I mean, their job never stops and they need each other. It can basically be a little community for these truck drivers. And when you're out on the road away from f- friends and family, these truck stops not only meet their basic needs of like eating, and sleeping and cleaning up but their social needs as well. Rudy had recently made a delivery in Vessel, New York, and was actually on his way home um, when this happened. And to put into perspective um, just how small Evans Mills, the little town he was from, was during seven, 1972, the most recently released census claims that Evan Mills has a population of only 605 re- residents. And that's now. So I can only imagine how tiny it was in 1972. Now, I was unable to find much information about the witness who placed the call after finding Rudy. Um, while they did both work for the same company, it's unsure if the two knew each other very well or even at all. I'm guessing that Whitaker Trucking Company was large and with the differing schedules, it's possible that they never met. But we also have to take into consideration that it's possible that they did Did know each other? Was there any bad blood between them? I don't know. I mean, truck drivers can at times—not all of them—but I've heard that at times they can be territorial. I mean, the person who gets the best gigs gets the most money in the end. I mean, it seems pretty petty that that would have been the motive to kill someone. But as we know, people have been murdered for some of the most ridiculous things. And I would personally like to know more information about the dynamic, if any, between these two coworkers to officially rule him out as a suspect. And while I'm sure that state troopers did just that, if they did, they're not sharing any of that information with the press. Police say that Rothberg was shot in the head with a shotgun while he was sleeping in the cab of his truck in the driver's seat. They also relayed that the doors of Rothberg's truck were locked at the time of finding him. During the investigation, it was discovered that Mr. Rothberg's hip pocket of his pants was completely torn and a wallet that had had only a minimal amount of cash and a few credit cards had been stolen. Now, while police say all doors to the cab were locked, police sources at the time disclosed that Rudy was shot in the right side of the face from an extremely close range and that both the windows were slightly rolled down, possibly because Rothberg had been speaking to someone. And so, thus begins some contradicting reports on this case because at first they said Rudy was sleeping at the time of his murder, and then in other articles they claim that he may have been speaking to someone at the time of his death. And I don't know about you, but I would love to get my hands on Mr. Rothberg's autopsy report because I think all of this confusion like, was he awake? Was he not awake? could be easily remedied by figuring out. If Rudy had any defensive wounds, particularly on his arms and hands, I mean, think about it. If you're talking to someone out of the window of your car and all of a sudden that person brings a shotgun up and points it at your head, what's your first response going to be? Your first response is going to be to shield your face and most likely turn your entire body in order to get away from this danger. Contrary to if you were sleeping and didn't notice that someone had approached your vehicle and then you were subsequently shot without you even having a chance to defend yourself. Also, it would be interesting to note that they say he was shot on the right side of his face. And if you're in the driver's seat, the left side of your face is closest to the driver's window. So if they think that someone shot him through the window, he was shot through the passenger window, not the driver's side which to me makes it unlikely, I mean, not impossible, but unlikely that Mr. Rothberg was engaged in a conversation at the time. I mean, I suppose it's possible someone coming up to the passenger side window to talk, but I don't know. It's just something to think about. Anyway, if investigators are having a hard time deciphering or agreeing on what was happening moments before Mr. Rothberg's murder, I think that would be a good place to start. Also, November in New York is cold, cold, cold. And while I didn't see any snow in the pictures that I'm going to post on our Instagram account, I did notice that there was like some mud and some puddles. So I don't know if it had been raining that night or if there had been some snow that melted. Um, But I'm wondering if there were any footprints. And if there were footprints, were any of them casted? I mean, but maybe they weren't looking for footprints in 1970. Maybe they didn't have the technology or the resources. Does anyone know when footprint casting technology was developed? Was it before or after the 1970s? If so, let me know. I tried to do a little bit bit of research, but it was inconclusive. So if you know, let me know. Perhaps there are some casts, but state troopers are keeping that information close to the chest. I mean, Remember in the case of Patrice Andres, the lead detective explained to us what guilty knowledge information is, information that they know, but they want to keep it quiet in order to weed out false confessions from the actual one. I can only speculate, since we have such limited information about Rudy's death, um, that Rudy was unfortunately met with foul play, either by the person who claimed to have found him, which we know happens more likely than we like to believe, Or, he was simply, and unfortunately, a victim of opportunity. In order to see the bigger picture in this case, we need to discuss what was going on in the south side of Syracuse during this time. Syracuse, 1968. Just four years prior to Rudy's murder, part of I-81, a major freeway, was built as an elevated highway across residential areas in Syracuse's downtown. Syracuse officials thought that by building a freeway through the middle of town, that it would become an economic powerhouse. The decision was intended to make traveling from downtown Syracuse to Syracuse University a faster commute. The construction of the I-81 came with much controversy with all of the residents that lived there. Some people argued that it was going to be a great idea and that it would boost their economy. Other people argued that having the highway, even though it was elevated, would cause major, major disruptions. And those people were rightfully so to believe that because Syracuse became, and still is to this day, the city with the most concentrated poverty in all of America. Neighborhoods like this in the south part of Syracuse have been historically poor since the 1968 overpass was built, forcing people in those areas to sell or to retreat to other parts of the city because the very presence of the freeway lowered the cost of their home or literally displaced them. Like If they were living in an apartment building, they didn't get any money from the city because they were losing their home. They just were like, well, you can't live here. Figure it out. Others were who were not doing well off to begin with were greatly affected by the highway being built because the city gave them either low, a low amount of money or no money, forcing them to live in low-income housing. Before the overpass was built, most of the neighborhood was actually a coveted one. To this day, you can drive through the neighborhoods and you can see gorgeous Victorian-style houses with incredibly immaculate attention to detail with the architecture and intricate design, but now many of these homes are abandoned. They're derelict or have been converted into boarding houses that home several families. There are no reputable supermarkets in the area and I can attest to that because the church that I went to when I lived in that area, we had to cut through that part of town and you didn't see any grocery stores. There were like no Smiths, no Wegmans, no no basically nowhere that sold fresh food. They only had like small convenience stores that sold cigarettes and beer. Most heavily advertised that they accepted food stamps. Most of the poverty that affects this area is generational, and many can literally trace it back their family's decline in wealth to the construction and subsequent build of the I-81 freeway cutting through their neighborhood. Now Poverty under any circumstances is obviously awful, and it causes trials, and it causes issues, but being surrounded by poverty that doesn't seem to be letting up anytime soon can be even more detrimental. Academics refer to these neighborhoods in a fancy term, concentrated poverty areas, but to the average person like you and me, we refer to these areas as the ghetto or a slum. In these areas, individuals are far less likely to graduate from high school. They're far less likely to have the opportunity to attend college. Most begin to have their children very, very young in their teens. They're much less likely to reach a different income level from the one in which they were raised. Additionally, the neighborhoods with the highest concentrations of poor people tend to have worse schools, because it's hard to get good teachers that are willing to work in these schools, fewer businesses um, due to there not being enough customers with a disposable income to sustain any business that moves into the neighborhood, and more violent crime. According to an article titled How to Decimate a City, which seems like a parody, but it is in fact, sadly, 100% accurate, in Syracuse, almost two-thirds of poor minorities live in high-poverty neighborhoods, and this is defined as an area where 40% or more of re- residents live below the federal poverty threshold. Paul Jergowski, a professor at Rutgers, defines the poverty line for a family of four as an income less than $24,000. Syracuse has the highest rates of both black and Hispanic poverty neighborhoods in our entire nation. The more worrying part, however, is not the past or the current situation, but the fact that things do not seem to be looking up. Over the past decade, the concentration of poverty in Syracuse has only increased. I mean, despite all of the programs that are Being implemented to help people, it's just increasing year after year after year. As true crime lovers, we know that where there is increased poverty, there are also increased levels of crime. Darlene Sanford, who is 38, runs a daycare in her great grandmother's 19th century home near the freeway. Um, a few weeks ago, before this article was written, she had to call 911 after a man living next door to her was targeted in a drive-by shooting. Darlene no longer leaves her home at night, and she is thinking of leaving the city entirely. And honestly, when I read this article, all I could think about was The Purge. Like, have you guys ever read, that, um, seen that movie where like people don't leave their home; they just kind of like board themselves up? That's like all I could think about when reading this. And, and honestly, like, I don't know, I mean, I have to assume that Syracuse was this bad when I was living there, but I was probably just like a dumb teenager and was just like not processing like everything that was going around me because I was just like super into myself. But I mean, this has been happening since 1968 and possibly even a little bit before that. So it must have had to have been happening, but I just was like naive and just didn't even see it. But now like reading these articles, I'm like, I can't believe that this was happening and is continuing to happen and continuing to get worse in my little hometown that I love dearly. In recent years, Syracuse has hovered, holding its place at either 25 or 28 in the the deadliest U.S. cities in America. So there's like a top 100 list and Syracuse is usually number 25, 26, 27, or 28. That is pretty freaking high up on the list. And just last month I was looking, Syracuse police reported 13 bouts of unrelated gunfire. So like these are not like Oh, somebody shot somebody 13 times in this one isolated incident. This is 13 bouts of unrelated gunfire in which nine people were killed. And this was just last month, July, 2020. But it wasn't always this way. The story of how poverty became one of the defining characteristics of Syracuse is not a complicated one, as you will see. It has everything to do with a passive government like local government and a spot in their city that these local officials didn't particularly care for. And without considering human life, they just displaced people that were already in the depths of poverty. And somehow they thought that this would make their unwanted problem disappear. And so let's continue on and see how that turned out for these city officials, shall we? In 1956, the city was working to get a piece of some of the money made available in the 1956 Federal Highway Act, which authorized money for the construction of the interstate system. While the idea of creating a highway that would literally cut through the city should have been handled with more tact and more thoughtfully, it appears that the people in charge at the time were super, super passive about it. Apparently, after World War II, an influx of ethnic people, specifically Hispanic and Black people, migrated to the Syracuse area. If you're not familiar with the Syracuse area or its histories, I'll have you know that it used to be a booming and thriving city, a coveted city. It had a lot of huge factories that were always in need of workers, many migrants saw Syracuse as a city of opportunity. Um, even last year, my husband got on this huge Twilight Zone kick and he was watching all of the old black and white episodes and they were actually super interesting and a lot of them were really creepy and I could like tie back some scary movies that have been released today back to like some common themes from the, the those episodes. But anyway... Um, I could not help but notice how many times the main character of the episode was on their way to Syracuse to start a new job and a new life. While the job opportunities at the factories, I mean, they didn't pay too much. I mean, working there wasn't going to make you like Mr. Monopoly or anything. You could make a decent living. And a lot of people saw it as their opportunity to hopefully work their way up the ranks or provide them with financial support as they continue their education. Or maybe they were just like, you know what? I don't, I don't need that much. I just want to live comfortably. And, and this is the best for me. Unfortunately, we have to remember that it was the 1960s and even in New York, even in the nether- the Northern States, racism often prevented black residents and Hispanic residents from buying homes and acquiring good jobs. Um, In the article, How to Decimate a City, one man in the article, Mr. Dunham, remembers a family friend who was one of the first African Americans to actually graduate from Syracuse University's law school. After graduating, he couldn't find a job because no firms in Syracuse would hire him because he was a black lawyer. Another of his family friends applied to several medical schools and was rejected everywhere despite his impeccable grades. Another man mentioned in the article, Mr. Breland, was the first black man to actually receive a sports scholarship to SU, and even after graduating top of his class, it would be three years before he would be able to get a job as a full-time educator, and this is despite the fact that they were... um, Apparently, many vacancies, they were always advertising for vacancies at their school in the paper, and he was constantly applying, and he was constantly substitute teaching within the district. Um, He says, I felt like I was being stonewalled, like they wanted me there to substitute, but they would not hire me officially. Many black migrants settled in the 15th Ward, which they don't really split the city into wards anymore, um, but it's a neighborhood adjacent to downtown. Denham's parents and their friends had actually moved to Syracuse from the south to flee prejudice because they had heard that the northern states were a little more chill, but apparently not. There was a huge migration in the region to a place called Wilson Park. He said he remembers being poorer when he was growing up, but he remembers his childhood quite fondly due to the existence of a close-knit community that he and his family got When everybody would congregate after dinner around Wilson Park. However, to outsiders and to city officials, the majority black neighborhood was a quote unquote slum land ripe for redevelopment because of its proximity to downtown. So, when the city's grant for the Federal Highway Act finally went through, the one that we were talking about earlier, city officials knew exactly where they'd put their freeway, the place they already considered undesirable. I was actually able to speak with a couple of Syracuse residents who lived in Syracuse before, during, and after the construction of I-81, and almost all say that there was a huge shift in increasing poverty and crime rates. Most, if not all, said that before the freeway was built, I mean, of course their city had poverty, of course their city had problems and and crime, all cities have some form of poverty and crime, but they said that the violence of the crime were not as high as they were after. Due to the construction of the highway, many families were displaced and furthermore, not given any opportunities to rebuild their life. I think that the city officials had hoped in their hearts that if we just displace these quote-unquote undesirable people from living into our city, they're just going to move somewhere else and and then we won't have to deal with them anymore. And how they expected people with no money and no resources to afford relocation, I haven't the faintest clue, but according to the people that I spoke to who were like in their early teens, like 13, 14 at the time, that was like the common themes that they remember hearing on the news and hearing like within their schools at the time of making this decision. Many families, although they didn't want to, were forced to live in low-income communities, which are essentially projects. The combination of those families being displaced and the struggle to find work caused many people to resort to desperate means for money that they wouldn't have had to otherwise. Shortly after the highway construction began, burglary, aggravated robbery, and violent offenses increased and have continued to increase substantially year after year up to today. Rebecca Herberl, who runs the local Head Start program for Peace Incorporated, at least she did at the time of the article, which is a nonprofit in Syracuse, expressed We see a lot of generational poverty here. People face so many challenges. Their water has been shut off, their power has been shut off, they have rodent or insect infestations, they need money for food, formula, clothing diapers, a bus pass to get to and from work, if they are even able to acquire a job at all. One of the people I spoke to said that in the early 1970s, her father was a school psychologist at an elementary school on the Syracuse South Side. The stories he would recount to them at dinnertime were absolutely devastating, and she still remembers a lot of them vividly, but this is the one that she decided to share with me. She remembers one instance where a little boy had been demonstrating increasingly violent behaviors at school. In fact, one day he had even brought a walking cane to school and had started whacking people in the head with it. Her dad calmly told the child, Hey, I know you love your walking cane. But if you continue to harm kids with it, I'm going to have to take it and I'm going to have to dispose of it. And the boy agreed. He said, okay, I'll stop. I'll stop. I promise. And then shortly, like two hours later, the boy was sent back to the the office because he did it again. Her dad, you know, as a psychologist, followed through. They had made an agreement, an arrangement, and it had been broken. He followed through with his promise, and he took the stick, and he broke it into two pieces. The child had an absolute meltdown that truly shocked and confused her dad. I mean, yeah, he broke his toy, but it's just like a toy, right? It was only after calling the child's mother that he learned that this cane was the child's only possession, his only toy. He, of course, felt completely awful. I mean, obviously, if he would have known, he wouldn't have destroyed the boy's only toy. So why am I telling you all of this background information of Syracuse that doesn't really seem to have to do, at least not directly, with Rudy's death? Well, because I believe that the climate of Syracuse at the time was a dark and looming cloud of desperation. There were many people who didn't know how they were going to make ends meet, We all hope and pray that we'll never find ourselves in this type of a situation, but this is the reality that many people face not only in Syracuse, New York, but throughout our country. We have to remember that the south side of Syracuse was not all too far from the rest area where Rudy met with foul play. Is it possible that Rudy was the unfortunate victim of foul play of a truly desperate person who saw Rudy as an opportunity to get a quick buck? Is it possible that what was supposed to be a robbery, just a robbery, escalated to something much more sinister? If so, it would make sense why this case has remained unsolved for the last 48 years. I mean, We know it's hard enough to find the perpetrator of a crime if the person is known to the victim, but it's even more difficult, almost impossible, if the person involved has literally no connection to their killer other than just being at the wrong place at the wrong time. And while I certainly don't want to make any excuses for the person who killed and subsequently robbed Rudy. I do think it's important to know about the economic climate of the city at the time, which could perhaps provide some motive or some insight into this case. I think that somewhere out there knows what happened late that cold and dark November morning. I think this person I mean, it's possible that this person is the only one who knows what happened. I mean, I don't think that somebody does something like this and just like advertises it and broadcasts it. I mean, will this person t- take this secret to their grave? Have they already taken the secret to their grave? Only time will tell. Unsolved cases like this are extremely difficult to research because quite frankly, they're isn't much information to go off on. I mean, if there was more information, the case would most likely be solved already, but this is the harsh reality of cold cases and why they remain unsolved for so long. This case is particularly difficult because not only is there not much information on the crime itself, but there is hardly any information regarding Rudy Allen Rothberg himself. I can so much as even find an image of him in any of the local papers or articles that I looked through. I don't know if he had a family. I don't know if he had a wife. I don't know if he had children. I couldn't find any quotes other than the descriptions that his co-workers gave him. I searched through the Evans Mills obituaries during the time and I couldn't find it there. I looked through Lafayette papers. I looked through Syracuse papers. I looked through Evan Mills papers. There were no pictures, no like story telling us a little bit about him when he was a kid or even later on. I was looking everywhere to see if there might be anyone who was close to him that could provide a character description, but nothing could be found. In a sense, this isn't particularly unusual. I mean, being on the road for days, weeks, sometimes months at a time can make it quite difficult to make and maintain relationships or friendships. I mean, if you didn't know this, the divorce rates of people within the truck driving industry are astronomical. We also need to remember that while Rudy wasn't old by any means, I mean, he was only 52, his mother and father might have been in their 70s or 80s, or maybe they already passed. And because I can't get any information on his upbringing, I'm unsure if he had any sisters or brothers or cousins or aunts or uncles. And this is what makes me feel very sad about the case, because I feel like we have such limited information about him and his death. And it's just devastating to me. At first, the lack of information, photographs, newspaper articles made me feel like giving up on Rudy. And I thought perhaps I should move on to another case. I mean, how on earth was I going to create an episode of this podcast with such limited information to go off on? But the more articles were sparse and the more I attempted to find photographs, obituaries, Family member quotes, honestly, anything about Rudy, to no avail. The more I felt I connected to him and my heart reached out to him. I feel like Rudy needed me to tell his story. And as sparse as the information we have to go off of, he needed all of us to hear his story. Even though Rudy's case doesn't have all the information And some of the frills that we have gotten from the other cases that we've discussed so far, Rudy needs and deserves his story to be told and heard today. It torments me to know that to this day, 48 years later in November, police have absolutely no leads on who murdered Rudy Allen Rothberg or why it seems we have absolutely no idea if Rudy was alive and scared for his life or peacefully sleeping and unaware of what was about to happen to him. I think it's my hope and it's all of our hope that it would be the latter. I mean, it would be so sad to learn that his final moments were filled with confusion and anxiety. Either way, Rudy deserves justice. If you or anyone you know has information regarding this case... If you know someone who acted strangely or their behavior patterns changed on or around the time of November 8th, 1972, maybe you've heard like rumors at family dinners of someone who's like, oh yeah, my great uncle drunkenly told everybody that he killed this person. That's something that the state troopers need to know about. Contact investigator Eric Costello or senior investigator Reese S. Treen of the Troop D Major Crimes Unit by calling 315-366-6000. What do you guys make of this case? Do you think it was someone he knew or was Rudy just a victim of opportunity, unfortunately? Do you think this case will ever be solved? Let me know on our Instagram at mysterystillunsolved. Thank you all so much for joining me. Join me next week when together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved?